As I mentioned last week, as we, as we continue on in our study here in the book of Acts, Acts has a couple of different portions, and this portion here in chapters 19 and 20 is a turn. We're, we're now headed to the end. Um, Paul began, Luke tells us that Paul is now thinking about the end of this third missionary journey. He wants to get to Jerusalem. He wants to head on into Rome. And so he has eyes to, to what becomes the end of his life. And he probably suspects that. And so this portion here from, from chapters 19 through the end of the book, through chapter 28, those, those chapters now begin to head us towards the end. And it's here in, in chapter 20, in chapter 19 and 20, where, where Paul is, is kind of closing up his ministry in these missionary journeys as he has gone around to plant churches. He's in the city of Ephesus right now. If you remember, he's at the end of, of missionary journey number two. He, he headed back to Jerusalem and, and visited the church in Antioch. And then right away, with, really within just one verse as we read it there, he... he heads out again. He makes a beeline to get back to the city of Ephesus, the cosmopolitan city, the, the L.A. of that time. And when he gets there, there's, there's the giant temple of Artemis, which we've talked about a couple of different times, one of the ancient, seven ancient wonders of the ancient world, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. A magnificent temple built to the goddess Artemis. And, and the idea was that she had fallen out of the sky, had landed there in Ephesus. They built this temple to worship her, and, and her fame, her glory was what brought people to Ephesus, that they came to see her. And when they would come to see her, they would, they would worship her, they would, they would enter into the temple, they would worship there, but they would also take home with them the little statues of, of Artemis or a little replica replication of the temple. They would take those things home. And so when we came to, to chapter 19 here, we see the story of Demetrius. He is, he's the craftsman. He's the one that builds those idols, and he's beginning to be upset. Paul has been preaching down the road, talking about the one true God, and Demetrius is starting to feel that in his pocketbook. And so he gets the union together and he says, he says, this is hurting our business. Paul is telling people that these handmade gods are not real gods. And he goes on to say, this is going to actually destroy the temple, that, that the, the, the entire temple is going to come down and, and Artemis and her fame and her glory are going to become less known. And he gets a group of people together, so many people together that they, that they head into, the, into the, the theater there and they begin to chant, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. No one can calm them down. In fact, for two hours they shout that over and over and over until finally, finally the town clerk comes out, the true hero of the story, I'm told, comes out and he quiets the crowd and says, more or less, what he says is, this temple is too great. This goddess, Artemis, is too well known. Her fame will be known forever. This temple will stand forever. I don't understand why you're making such a big deal out of this, because there's nothing, there's nothing that will dwindle her glory and fame. 
it will last forever. And yet, we know, as we look back at history, that the temple doesn't stand in Ephesus any longer. Artemis is no longer worshipped as a goddess, at least not as she was at that time, but the church. What Paul was preaching on, the God that he was pointing us to, is still alive, and the church is still alive and still stands. That's us. We're here today as a reminder of what happened there in Ephesus, that the church is still around. We still create idols. We don't make them into goddesses of Artemis, but we still, we still worship created things rather than the creator. Paul tells us that in the book of Romans. That's the innate nature of our heart. But, but God helps us. God helps us to fight those things. So, let's look at chapter 20. What happens after this riot? When this riot quiets down, what happens to Paul as he leaves the city of Ephesus? We're going to start chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. It's page 929, if you have a pew Bible this morning. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through these regions and given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Phyrus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi, and after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. He prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus was sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them for a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were, and were not a little comforted. What can we learn from this passage here in Acts chapter 20. Paul is closing up his ministry in Ephesus. He's made up his mind. He's heading back to Jerusalem. He's going to then head on to Rome. His journey is, is set. He wants to get home for the Passover, back to Jerusalem for the Passover. And so his mind is set and he's ready to go. And so we come to this passage here in chapter 20. What can we learn from this? What's the theme in this passage? There's, there's, there's one word that's used several times. You see it right away in, in verses 1 and 2. He uses the word encouraged, is what the word is in the English language that we see there. And then later in verse 12, he uses a similar word for comfort that Paul provides to the church. Encouragement and comfort. What what can we see in these verses that help us to see Paul's example of encouragement and comfort? And what can we as a church learn 
from Acts chapter 20. Let me share with you just a few things this morning quickly. I think, I think there's four ways that we see encouragement and comfort for the church in this passage of Acts chapter 20. The first is that we see that Paul intentionally, intentionally shares encouragement. That's, the, that's the, the most clear, the most easiest thing for us to see. Paul calls the disciples to him so that he can encourage them. He, he travels through Macedonia so that he can uh, encourage the places where, where he has planted churches. He, he wants to encourage the early believers in those areas. That Paul goes and speaks and teaches and intentionally shares encouragement to those early believers and those early church plants. That's pretty clear that we can see that. But there's so much more to the story. If you begin to, to overlay, as I've mentioned, some of Paul's letters, as you, as you begin to understand the timeline, there are times in the book of Acts where Luke shares minute details, including in this story, shares some minute details that it's difficult for us to understand why he puts those in there. And then there's other places where Luke entirely writes over, glosses over, large portions of what has happened and just continues on with the story. We find that in this passage as well. You see, we, we know as, as you overlay the, the, the letters of First and Second Corinthians, the letters that Paul has written to the church in Corinth, where he had been previously in his missionary journey number two, he's, he's gotten a report while he's been in Ephesus from some of those that, that have been a part of that church and visited that church in Corinth. He's got a report that, that it's not good in Corinth in the church. We've talked about this a little bit, but there's, there's a group of believers in the church in Corinth that, that say that they are, they are the believers of Apollos, that P Apollos is the one that has taught them and trained them, that Apollos is the one that they follow. And there's others maybe in a response to that, but they say, well, we're not, we're not Apollos believers, we're Peter believers. We, we go back to the, one of the first disciples that began to share and teach. And others say, no, we're, we're disciples of Paul. And then there's the group then there's the group in the church that says, we're not Apollos or Peter or Paul disciples. We're the Jesus disciples. And so there's all of these splinter groups in the church in Corinth. But it's not just splinter groups. There's, there's sexual immorality that has taken hold among the believers in the church in Corinth. And even more than that, there's, there's the Lord's Supper, which they are, are taking together that they're mishandling and they're abusing they're, they're, they're separating who can come and who can't come and in what ways can they come. And Paul begins to hear this report about these believers in Corinth. And so he writes a letter while he's still in Ephesus. He sends off a letter, a, a, a harsh letter, a hard letter. First Corinthians is the letter that he sends to, to the church in Corinth. He talks later about how, how he sent it in tears, he'll write, and, and how difficult it was to call them out on some of these things that they're doing. And so he, he sends the letter with Titus over to, to the church in Corinth and while he is still in Ephesus. And, and he wants to, we can assume and, and we can kind of read in between the lines in his letters, he wants to head there. He wants to go to Corinth. He wants to, to see those believers. He wants to help them. He wants to teach them. But he's written this letter and he's not sure how it's been received. 
And he's not sure how they've heard his, his teachings and his, his exhortations to them. He's not sure, when, as he has called them out, what their response is going to be. And so Paul is ready to leave Ephesus, and he could jump on a boat. If you remember the map, in fact, I think I have the map up here a little bit. He can jump on the boat, and he can head directly across the sea and go from Ephesus directly across to Corinth. And that would be the, the plan. That's probably how, how Titus went when he took the letter that Paul had. But, but Paul's, he holds back. He doesn't jump on a boat to head directly over. In fact, he decides he's going to go north through Macedonia. And so the arrows, as you see, begin to head up to the north. And they go farther up. And he visits several of those churches and heads back to Troas and then across into Europe or, or into Macedonia there and, and start the journey back down. He's nervous. He's scared. He doesn't want to go to Corinth. He does, but he doesn't. And so he works his way around to the north. He's not sure what his reception's going to be like when he gets to Corinth. And so he's waiting. He wants, he wants to see Titus. He wants to hear from Titus. He wants to know what's happening in the city. So he travels north, and he begins to work his way around. Finally, in 2 Corinthians, it tells us that, that he finally meets Titus up there in the north and finally gets the report from Titus that the people of Corinth, the church in Corinth, has, has heard, has read his letter, has heard what he's been telling them, and they have repented that they've been changed. And so Paul right away writes off a second letter to the church in Corinth, sends it ahead with Titus, and then begins to travel south, heading then to the city of Corinth. He's, 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 he's ready to go. He knows that he'll be received. He's, he's been given permission to come back to Corinth. And so he begins to travel that way. He spends the winter months. He spends the winter months there in Corinth. And while he winters there, he writes the letter to the Romans that he wants to come and see them, that he, he wants to, to share with them the gospel. He, wants to, he, want, he writes it out and, and begins to share it with them and tells them, I, I, I want to come your way. I want to come to Rome and share these truths with you. And we see that he, as, he, as he winters there in Corinth, he's, he's, he's settled. He's able to, to, to share the gospel in, in the most clear of all of his letters that we have. And he writes the letter to the Romans. He also, he also, it's not all roses for Paul. He has a plan to get back to Jerusalem for Passover. He's, gonna, he's going to jump on a boat there and, and, and head out via boat off to, to Jerusalem so that he can be there for Passover. Lots and lots of Jewish, Jewish people would have been getting on boats. They would have been packed with Jewish pilgrims heading back to Jerusalem to get there for Passover. And in the midst of that, there becomes a report to Paul that these Jews, these not, non-believing Jews, still, still holding to the Jewish tradition who are upset with Paul and angry with Paul, they have concocted a plan, they've come up with a plan to take care of Paul when he gets on the boat. They're gonna travel out into sea. Paul can't escape from them. And those those angry Jews are somehow going to kill Paul and probably throw his body off into the sea. And so Paul decides that he, it's unsafe 
for him to travel by boat back to Jerusalem, and so he heads north. That's a lot that Luke doesn't tell us when he tells us this. Luke says, when he'd gone through these regions and given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months and a plot was made against him by the Jews when he was to set sail to Syria, so he decided to return through Macedonia. We don't see it all. We don't see the whole story, but, but as we understand the story, we see that Paul is intentionally, in the midst of this, encouraging the believers. He tells us he's encouraging them. We know he's writing the letter, 2 Corinthians, he writes the letter to the Romans. He's intentionally encouraging them. And our call, I think, in that is that we are also to be intentional encouragers, like Paul. I think that's our call as a church body. That's our call as a congregation. You this morning, though, might be tempted to say, it's not the same for me. I'm not, I'm not wired like Paul was. Paul's, Paul's personality was better suited to share encouragement. You might say that. I would say you're wrong. Paul, I don't think Paul's personality was encourager. Paul was a pioneer. He was a hard charger. He was one that, that, that was type A. He was the one that led. He was the one that led the stonings early on before he was a believer. He's ahead. He's in the front of the line all the time. Paul's personality, I don't think, was encourager. And yet, that's what God has called him to do, especially now as he's, as he's later in life. He's beginning to, to share the wisdom, the maturity that God has given to him. And he's sharing encouragement. You might say, you might say, Paul's life, Paul doesn't understand. I, and my life is so much, this is what you might say, my life is so much harder than Paul's. And again, I'd say, I think you're probably wrong. Paul's going through one of these hardest parts of his ministry here. He's the church that he loves, Corinth. He, he's, he's been two years there, if you remember. Teaching, raising up believers, giving his life to the church in Corinth. And now, and now they've splintered apart. They have all of these factions. Sexual immorality has come in. They're doing all these things that, that, that Paul is preaching against. He's written off a hard letter to them, and he hasn't heard back. He doesn't have any idea what's going on. And it's in the midst of those things when Paul is troubled that he's going around encouraging believers, building the church as he wanders back through. It's when there's a report that he can't get on the ship to go to Jerusalem at the time and the time frame that he wanted to. He's not going to be able to get back for Passover in Jerusalem, which was his, which his desire, his hope. He's not able to do what he wanted to do because his very life is in danger. That's when he goes around and encourages the believers. He intentionally shares encouragement, and I think that's our call as well. But there's more in this passage than just Paul intentionally sharing encouragement with believers. We also see that Paul, and I think the church, is strengthened by the cooperative shared journey of believers. There's, a, again, a reason why Luke lists these names in Acts chapter 20, why he has a list of all of these men, why Sopater and, and Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius and Timothy and Tychus and Trophimus, why they're listed. I think it helps us to see 
several things. One is that they're listed from different cities. Different churches that have been planted have sent representatives together to travel with Paul. There's safety in numbers for them, I think. That's part of why they're traveling together. But I think they also know that these men that, that they've sent off are, are leaders and certainly potential leaders for their churches. So they send them off so that, so that they can rub shoulders with Paul, so that they can hear his encouragement as they go church to church and travel together. So as they walk down the road, as they ride in the ships, as they're together day after day after day after day, that these men are gaining the wisdom and, and maturity that Paul is passing on to them, that they're getting the encouragement that Paul is passing on to them, that they're having the training that Paul is passing on to them. There's nothing, there's nothing quite like a road trip to bond people together. And that's what's happening with these disciples. That they're traveling together with Paul, visiting, sharing, learning together, so that they might one day go back to their churches and that they might share the encouragement that Paul had shared with them, the training that Paul had given to them, that they might pass that on to their home churches. There's also, though, there's also, it's not just this shared journey, this shared road trip where they continue on, though that's part of what we need to do, I think, as believers. Maybe it's not a road trip for all of us, but there are times that we need to get together, that we need to journey together, we need to share together, whether that's over a meal or, or a road trip together or sharing burdens together or praying or texting one another. We need to encourage each other. But the other reason why these men are traveling together, commentators tell us, is that Paul, and we've seen this earlier in the book of Acts, Paul has gone to these churches and he's asked them for an offering. The church in Jerusalem, the early Jewish believers from Jerusalem are, are struggling. There's a famine back in Jerusalem and so they are collecting an offering so that the Gentile churches in this area of the world might give a financial gift, a financial offering to the Jewish church, the Jewish early believers in Jerusalem. And so these men are probably the protectors of the money from their churches. That's why each church has someone who has been sent along, or most of the churches have someone who's part of this journey that these men have collected and are protecting the offering from these Gentile churches to give to the Jews in Jerusalem. And there's encouragement, I think, in the midst of this shared journey in the sacrificial and generous giving that comes, both in the giving and in the receiving of the gifts. The church is encouraged. The Jewish church, encouraged by the gift that they receive by the Gentile churches. And the Gentiles, I think, find encouragement in their opportunity and ability to give. But the church is also encouraged and strengthened in this passage, I think, by worshiping together. We see that as, as Paul, he's, he's headed down, he, he went through Macedonia, he went through Troas, he came all the way down, spent the winter in Corinth, couldn't take the boat, and so he headed back north. He's in Troas here in this journey. Again, all of this happens pretty quickly in these verses. But he's in Troas, and the, and the boat that they're riding on, whether it's, it needs to be restocked or he has to wait for another boat, we don't know all the details, but we know that, that Luke, who's traveling now with Paul, this is another one of those we passages, Luke travels with Paul, they stop in Troas, and while they're there, 
They're there long enough to take part in a worship service, a church service with the believers in Troas. And there's several things that we see just in this short little passage about these believers, this worship service that happens here in Troas that I think we wanna, that we wanna note. This is the first place, this is the first place we find in scripture that they say on the first day of the week, the believers gather. On the first day of the week, believers gather. Jewish believers would have been gathering on the Sabbath day. The last Sabbath, last rest day of the week. That would have been their tradition. That would have been what they, what they had been doing. And that's probably what they would have continued to do. But this, now we see that the church is gathering on the first day of the week. And, and, and you know, probably, you maybe have heard this, but, but most theologians, most commentators would say that they are, they are remembering, celebrating the day that Jesus was resurrected. In fact, they would, call, they would have called it, this is the Lord's day. Remembering his resurrection. It's much like, it's much like those young junior high or high school romances when they remember the, their little anniversaries. They remember this is, our, this is our 17th Monday that we've been together. This is our three and a half month anniversary, whatever that might be. They remember it. And that would have been true for early believers much more than a junior high romance. This is the romance of a God who sent his son to triumph over death for his people. And so the Sunday after, believers would have said a week ago, Jesus was raised from the dead. Two weeks ago, six months ago on this day, Jesus was raised from the dead. And so that continues on. And now, now the church gathers not on Sabbath, but on the first day of the week, remembering that Jesus was raised from the dead on that day. There's a natural transition for them to move from the Sabbath to move to the Lord's day, celebrating the anniversary of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It tells us that on that first day of the week, they they gather probably in the evening. That would have been a work day. And so they gathered in the evening that day. And Paul begins to teach and reason together with them. This word teach and and reason that is used here is the idea of of preaching. That Paul gathered them together and began to teach. He began to share from the word. He began to share how Jesus was a fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies. He He would have walked them through those teachings. We're encouraged, we're strengthened by the word. And we need to find our strength in the word. Pastor Stephen and I, in our staff meetings each week, are are reading a book together. And one of the books, one of the chapters that we recently read, the author said that expository preaching, verse-by-verse preaching through the scripture, is the most important part of a church. The most important mark of a church. Because life comes from the word. Life comes from the word. It was true in the garden when God spoke and life came to be. It's true in Jesus, the word, who was raised to life, helping us to celebrate on that first day. Life comes from the word, and we need to find our hope. We need to find our strength in the word. It's the most important And so Paul, as he gathered with the believers, taught the word, 
It also says that he conversed, is the, is the word that it uses a little later. Probably fellowshipping, visiting in a, in a more informal way, he would have spent time with the church there in Troas. He preached and he hung out with the believers. We need both of those as a church. We need to be in the word and we need to be about the word, but we also need to just share some time together. It also tells us that they broke bread together, probably meaning both that they had a meal during that time, but also that they shared in communion together. That there's an importance about coming together for those things. The church was strengthened and encouraged by worshiping together. You see, you see that Paul, Paul that night probably started in the evening after the workday and preached until midnight. We think that's probably prescriptive. We're going to start doing that at our church, meeting at seven, preaching till midnight. I hope you can be here for that service. We don't think it's prescriptive. We think it's descriptive of what was happening in Troas that day. Probably a special service because Paul was going to leave the next day. Whatever the case, Paul is teaching the word. Probably, let's say they meet at 7, it's midnight, he, 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 he's been preaching for five hours already. And while he's preaching, the, it's, it's already dark, they have lots of lights that are burning in the room. It's beginning to get hot and stuffy. And there's a boy named Eutychus. Eutychus, the meaning of his name, if you can get this, the meaning of his name in that language would have been fortunate, or, or even better, his name would have been lucky. Eutychus is getting hot. The room is stuffy. The oxygen is being sucked out of the room by the lamps which is an interesting, again, detail that Luke puts in. He skips all kinds of things in this story, but puts in a detail that there's lots of lamps in the room. The oxygen in the room is being sucked out, and so Eutychus heads to the window. Paul's been preaching for five hours, and Eutychus falls into a deep sleep in the window and falls out. Three stories to his death. Luke's there. Luke's the doctor. Luke knows dead and not dead. And he tells us that Eutychus is dead. Paul heads to the ground floor, heads out, bends over him and says, there's life in him. And Eutychus comes back and Luke, again, in his understated way, says there was no little comfort in the fact that the youth was alive. five-hour sermons, if you, if you read it there, it's five hours till Eutychus falls out the window and then they wake it to daylight after that. It's a full night of teaching, preaching, and fellowshipping together. Five hours of a message. Boy falls out, dies, comes back to life. That's not a normal thing, I don't think, in the church in Troas, and it certainly is not a normal thing for us. But... The church is encouraged. The church is comforted. The church is strengthened by seeing dead people come to life. Here in Troas, they actually see a dead boy come to life. But in all these other churches that Paul is traveling through, and even here at Richland, 
while we may not see dead boys falling out of windows coming back to life, we do see those who once were dead, lost in their sin, separated from Christ. We do see them come to life and we are encouraged and comforted and strengthened by it. Worship team is gonna come and help us this morning as we close. There's nothing, there's nothing that encourages and strengthens believers like seeing people truly come to faith. There's nothing that strengthens the church more than seeing people throw off the clothes of self-righteousness. Seeing people throw off the stinky and filthy rags of our own efforts. Discarding the fig leaves of our own attempts to cover our shame. There's nothing that brings encouragement to the church than seeing people rejoice in the life-changing, hope-giving, eternity-lasting, righteous robes of Jesus Christ. We're hope-filled, we're encouraged and comforted when we see dead people come to life. And I hope that you're encouraged by that as well. Please stand with me this morning as we worship together. Accept my humble offering. All I have is yours. When I was chained to greed and pride, tight-fisted, destined just to die, you paid my debt and bought my life. All I have is of grace all I have is yours you show me this to grow my faith all I have is yours the more I give the less I need I learned that you'll provide for me twas blind to but now I see all I have is yours all I have all I have all I have is yours your kingdom come your will be done, all I have is yours, you'll finish all that you've begun, all I
Christ I bring in service of the coming King is reason now to praise and sing. All I have is yours. All I have. All I have. All I have is yours. All I have. in Corinth, he writes a letter to the Romans, encouraging them in their faith and asking them to encourage each other, and he gives us this benediction today. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for coming this morning. Thank you.